from WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later we'll hear what MSU political scientist Matt Grossman thought about the Democratic Convention and what he expects from this week's GOP outing. First, though, schools are opening in mid-Michigan, at least virtually. Here's a report by Kyle Kaminsky. All right, I'm Kyle Kaminsky, reporter at City Pulse, and in our upcoming print edition, we're taking a look at how school districts and colleges in Greater Lansing are preparing for the fall semester. In some cases, school has already started. For some, it begins in the next few days. And I'm here with Peter Spadafor, who, in addition to serving as the president of the Lansing City Council, is also the deputy director at the Michigan Association of Superintendents. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat, Peter. Uh, how are you holding up during all this? You know, we're doing, we're doing all right. Um, really trying to field a lot of questions from our members, um, trying to answer questions that are, are kind of being made up as, as, they, as things come along right now. You know, this is uncharted territory for educators, for, you know, people in local government, really everybody in our community and our state as we try to grapple with the impact of a pandemic on learning and on day-to-day life. Walk me through briefly what your role entails as the uh, deputy director for what is it now at the association? Sure, I'm sure it's quite a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> deputy executive director for external relations with the Michigan Association of Superintendents and Administrators. So we're a nonprofit association that represents superintendent, um, superintendents and central office administrators. So think of like the superintendent's cabinet as well. So we. We do professional development for them. We help them with communications. We provide government relations um, advice for them, and we are that association for them. So if you're a union member, uh, we're similar to, to that service that we provide in terms of resources for our membership. Gotcha. I know it's been a busy past few months. It still is as schools are preparing to welcome students back, in some cases for in-person classes, but also for largely virtual programming. Um, you know. On the whole, how do you think districts have been navigating this new landscape? You know, what are some of the things you're seeing in the greater Lansing area? Well, you know, statewide and in the greater Lansing area, I say this often, but educators do what educators do, and that's, that's get the job done. You know, this task that's before um, district leaders and classroom teachers and, and everyone in a, in a school district is unprecedented. And I know we use that word quite a bit, but it's unprecedented in modern times. And trying to figure out how to deliver education in a quality way um, at a distance or with um, certain safety measures in place is brand new territory. There is no graduate level education course that teaches a superintendent how to handle this situation. So what we're hearing and seeing is an unprecedented amount of collaboration and really um, teamwork among superintendents and administrators and, and educators, teachers, you know, right, right, right up and down the, the org chart to really try and make this work. You know, I was on a, a the economic club um, luncheon, we'll call it a luncheon, but there was no food and it was virtual yesterday. <laughs> I'm sorry, Thursday. And um, the, the, the conversation there, you know, really focused on how it is our preference as educators to have 
students in the classrooms, right? To, to be face-to-face with them, to work on not just the academic component of education, but the social and emotional learning that takes place, that mental health piece mm-hmm. that, that really is fostered in the classroom environment. But right now, in some cases, that's just not possible. You know, um, our friend Sam Sinecropi, the superintendent of Lansing, uh, mentioned that they would have had to purchase or lease 200 new buses to transport the some 7,000 students that ride the bus on a day-to-day basis because transportation is an issue in many districts across the state. Mm-hmm. You know, you look, it's not just a Lansing issue. We have some districts that are the size of Rhode Island from a land perspective, and that's a huge issue, getting students to and from school. Um, so they're, they're navigating that, And but I've just been so impressed, I think, with the, uh, the ability and attitude of our educators really trying to get the job done. I'm noticing a few distinct types of learning for this fall. You know, some districts, especially the larger ones like Lansing, are moving entirely virtual. Others, uh, smaller rural areas like Weberville, for instance, are doing a hybrid model with some in-person instruction. I know uh, at least one district is allowing for totally in-person instruction, but also an option for virtual learning. I think one thing that's kind of uh, emerged here is that there's no clear one-size-fits-all answer for how districts should operate. You know, I guess you've been on the ground floor with this. What type of consideration are these uh, districts making in terms of how to go about this school year and what makes one path right for one district and not for another? Sure, and I think you've highlighted something that's um, pretty special about Michigan is our traditions of local control. Um, and what's happening, I think you're seeing uh, – superintendents and and their boards and others working with health department officials with experts on the ground medical experts their teaching staff you know the transportation staff really to evaluate what is workable and doable in their community right and you've got a lot of different data points coming in some communities have uh, very few cases of COVID-19 right and they feel that they can pull off in-person instruction in a safe way uh, with uh, the right amount, with the right number of protocols and the right procedures in place, and other districts that looked at some of the, the numbers, some of the realities of what that would require to overcome, and said this is not going to be a way we can deliver education. And also, you hear from parents too. You know, it's not that going to a restaurant is more safe um, than education, or, or education is more safe than going to a restaurant. It's that um, the the reality is so many people depend on education and education is so important to students that we're trying to make it work in the best ways we can, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if this was if this wasn't education if it wasn't vital to the economy, you know, we probably would have a different conversation. But we're really trying to evaluate all of the statistics, all the facts, um, to to pull off something that hasn't been done before in the past, and that is a complete flipping of how we deliver education. We, 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 did, we have the benefit of learning from what happened in March. You know, March 17th, basically, we all went completely uh, distant learning, right? Mm-hmm. And every one of my members is, I think, proud of the work and the effort they did in a short period of time. But when you talk to each one of them, if they could do it differently, they would have done it differently. And that's what this is providing us, is an opportunity to evaluate the strengths of what was done in the spring and evaluate those opportunities for improvement. So when you look at our new extended continuity of learning plans and the roadmaps that we've been putting together, those are um, a product of that, that those experiences in the spring, um, you know, trying to really make it work. 
I said uh, I've heard it too. The overarching preference here is for in-person classes for that kind of emotional uh, social connection. Uh, how do you how do you go about replacing that in a virtual format? Obviously, there's some things that can't be done over a computer. What sorts of consequences are we going to see here? Or, I mean, how are districts going to overcome the the challenge there of, of really building a connection with students? Um, I think that's a good question, and I know districts are trying in terms of who they're looping in on those classes, and you, you can't do five hours of solid, you know, mathematics and, you know, and English and social studies and that kind of thing. So I know, you know, teachers, I've seen, uh, you know, examples of check-ins and talking about, you know, just having an experience, you know, myself, and I'm not at all comparing, you know, what classroom teachers do to what I just did, but I just did a virtual you know, workout class this morning and the instructor went around and we talked about our day and some of the struggles that we had this week and um, you know very simple things that you know you can try to engage um, I've heard some districts that are rather than advancing students through to the next teacher they, they're in the next grade but they've reassigned the second grade teacher to third grade so that the, the students all have that same cohort or that same instructor so that they have that relationship already building and I know every superintendent in the state that has gone virtual is looking ahead to try and figure out what what metrics what measures they can use to determine when it's safe to bring students back because ultimately nothing replaces that face-to-face -face contact with the teacher you know this is the time when our educators need to sort of wrap our arms and, and minds around students the closest because of the, the trauma that they've experienced through COVID-19 in general and we just can't we're, we're doing it through the screen and so that's going to be a challenge um, but again no one went into this you know education because you know just as a job they went in this as a calling and they, and they, they care about these children so I know you know districts are you know ramping up repurposing some of their staff um, to do check-ins around the districts right you know go door-to-door -door sometimes and just check in on kids you know appropriate measures obviously masks and those types of things but to really make sure that those connections are um, preserved and and um, or, or developed as the case may be so not an easy answer Kyle at all but they're they're trying and I know as I've said educators do what educators do they get the job done and they are working around the clock you know I, I had a conversation yesterday with someone who was concerned about something and it's like you know I, I just want you to know that not a single person in the education system in Michigan right now it, it took had a summer like they've ever had before you know working non-stop trying to prep for this year professional development was ongoing to get folks um, engaged in, in understanding how to better deliver instruction through virtual means um, you know the, 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 the purchasing effort to to provide devices was just Herculean and you know that doesn't solve everyone's problem because I've got districts all over the state where internet access is a problem mm -hmm. you know 25% of students and staff I'll add don't uh, roughly 25% don't have access to internet speeds capable of delivering instruction and some you know if they don't have that or maybe they do have it in their neighborhood they can't afford it or if they do have it in their neighborhood and they can afford it they don't have the device right so you can't learn on an, on an iphone right you need you need a full device so we're working on purchasing trying to get those devices in the hands of people that need them but in cases where they don't have the internet we're creating new methods of you know sending packets home on a regular basis and checking in over the phone or text message and, and stuff like that so we're really recreating how to communicate with children and families um, quickly mm -hmm. um, and trying to do it as effectively as possible so that students are not left behind in this equation. 
I know a lot of people uh, have concerns about is virtual learning a format that could work for me and uh, in some cases where districts have in-person plans they'll allow students to opt back into in-person if what they're doing virtually isn't working but I guess how important is it to have face-to-face -face instruction virtually more so than just having um, I guess a lesson plan that's recorded and televised. I mean, is there still a way to connect with students via the So screen? yeah, you're talking about synchronous versus asynchronous distance learning, right? So synchronous is I knew you had the technical term. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So synchronous is where everyone's sitting there uh, at the same time and you can interact and that's, that's important. And there's also some students though for whom asynchronous is better. You know, maybe they're they don't like to get up in the morning, right? You know, uh, so they it's it's better for them to watch that pre-recorded lesson and, and go through their homework. I was I probably would have done. I had some online courses in college. I, I tell you, I would have done better if they were if they were synchronous, right? But there are a lot of students out there for whom they just want to you know they could do their entire week's worth of work on a Monday because that's what you know because they they work like that, they function like that. So I think districts are really trying to provide as many options as possible. You know, we you're. You're a Lansing paper, so we'll talk about Lansing, but I know that their, their goal is screen-to-screen uh, -screen synchronous learning as much as possible so students are engaged. Um, districts like Lansing and others have set up sites with learning, lands and, uh, learning labs where people can um, go in and, and be with someone who's trained on how to run the, the learning management software. And someone asked me, well, how's that different from a classroom? So it's very different from a classroom, right? You know, you're talking a few students that need the help and the assistance um, off-site and while the teachers are, are teaching synchronous learning. So we're, we're really, I don't know if we're reinventing a wheel here, but we're certainly looking at new and uh, very different ways to try and deliver instruction in as many ways as possible so that students have the resources they need and to, 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 to not fall behind and to, and to learn this year, this semester, this marking period, however long this, um, this pandemic lasts and impacts education. Thanks, Kyle. City Pulse will have its annual back-to-school issue available on Wednesday. And if you'd like it waiting in your email box when you get up, please see www.lansingcitypulse to sign up for our e-newsletter. You're listening to City Pulse here on 89FM The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, and it's time for our weekly conversation about the 2020 presidential campaign with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman. Matt, what did you think of the Democratic Convention? Uh, it uh, served the needs of the Democratic Party. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, both gave uh, good speeches, and uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama reminded Americans of the previous Democratic administration, uh, and all, all of that uh, should should be good uh, for the Democrats. Um, they did concentrate a little more on uh, Trump um, than the positive messages, but they also, I think, laid out, especially in the personal traits of, of Joe Biden, a positive message about Biden. Uh, yeah, well, let's expand on that. Uh, first of all, uh, what do you think of his speech? Uh, I thought that uh, the demeanor uh, matched uh, sort of what people uh, like about Joe Biden and uh, might have uh, alleviated concerns about uh, age uh, or that he was just not not up to it. Uh, and then I thought the, the content uh, was uh, a great contrast with uh, President Trump. Um, and he did go through the usual litany of policies and social group 
uh, uh, that the party represents, but he didn't do it in a way that distracted attention from his uh, main uh, message of sort of back to back to uh, normalcy and decency, uh, which uh, was a big theme of the convention. Uh, it, it evoked for me a bit uh, an image of an FDR-like uh, person uh, coming to the rescue of the country. Uh, maybe I'm reaching too far here, but uh, didn't he actually uh, invoke FDR at some point in the talk? Uh, he quoted uh, FDR uh, a, a bit. Um, that's not uh, abnormal for, for Democratic uh, politicians. Um, but I would say that uh, he he stuck to his his usual um, con concerns and uh, his usual phrasing um, to to some extent. So he he also uh, you know was his own was his own man, um, and and that came through last night. And I'm, I'm reminded a bit of uh, LBJ using a mushroom cloud in his attacks on Barry Goldwater in the 1964 presidential campaign, only in the sense of uh, uh, both uh, President Obama and others uh, uh, setting a uh, tone here that the end of the world is drawing nigh uh, if you elect Donald Trump. Is that a message that uh, you think can be sustained throughout this campaign? Well, I thought that was a big theme of uh, President Obama's uh, speech and um, s certainly uh, came through also in some of the, the Republicans uh, who they uh, had on stage to, to speak. Um, I think they still do need a positive message about Joe Biden. Um, as we've talked about before, the research suggests that people have already made up their mind about uh, Donald Trump, so it's very hard to move uh, those opinions, but but you can change opinions of, of Joe Biden. But one thing that uh, Democrats have traditionally had an edge on is that their candidates are perceived as being more compassionate uh, and more empathetic. And they really leaned into that this year um, with, with Joe Biden. So I think that is the one kind of positive message that, that came through. Uh, at the same time, uh, he's got to get this to play in rural and small town America. Uh, that delivered Trump uh, his victory. Uh, do, do you see this uh, changing minds? Uh, are there minds to change? Well, conventions usually have a bigger effect on bringing home partisans, people who normally vote uh, for the party, uh, see things that they like uh, in the convention. Um, but the Democrats pretty much have already consolidated uh, their base to a much larger degree than they had at this point in um, in previous presidential elections. So there wasn't so much a need um, for that. I know uh, the left might have wanted more uh, direct shout outs, but there, there just isn't uh, the same need to consolidate support uh, from his left flank as uh, Hillary Clinton faced last time. Um, and so they really uh, tried to do more uh, direct outreach in, in both um, religious segments and segments about, even segments about agriculture. Um, to uh, try to uh, reach out, and Republicans were pretty prominent, and I think Joe Biden also will not lose his, uh, his image as being more moderate uh, than Donald Trump, which is something Hillary Clinton didn't have. Uh, I've never seen the Democrats, uh, I'm hard pressed to think of seeing the Democrats so uh, unified. Uh, how did they pull that off? 
I think Donald Trump mostly did it for them. Uh, that is, uh, you, you could really see um, uh, that, that uh, lots of Democrats uh, thought that this was an extremely important uh, election and, and are scared of, of Donald Trump. Uh, Bernie Sanders um, and Elizabeth Warren uh, really uh, seemed to be fully on board um, and uh, their supporters were not uh, there to de be dissenting in the convention hall this time. So uh, there really wasn't any visible dissent. Um, people may remember in 2016, coverage of the first two nights of the convention was dominated by uh, upset Sanders delegates and protesters outside. Um, so uh, that didn't happen this time, and I think that uh, that made a difference. But even before the convention started, Democrats were really just on board to defeat Donald Trump. We're talking to Matt Grossman, a political scientist from Michigan State University, as we do every week about the presidential campaign. You're listening to uh, City Pulse here on the impact. Matt, uh, what were your high points and low points? I think the high, high points were uh, Obama and uh, Biden's uh, speech. And I think the, the low point was uh, the, the trying to do 17 people in the keynote and, and overall really not demonstrating much concern with uh, rising stars in the party or being able to really have anyone else break through uh, as a representative of the party going forward other than the, the two nominees. What did you think of the format? Uh, obviously, uh, uh, one they had to do out of necessity, but uh, do you see, uh, are the days of balloons dropping over? This seems so much more entertaining. <laughs> I think there are some uh, gains. I thought, for example, the state-to-state um, -state, uh, roll call was better uh, this way uh, than, uh, than it is on the convention floor. Um, but I, I'm not sure that some of the speeches had the same punch that they would have had in a, in a large uh, hall with lots of uh, applause and, um, and, and shows of unity. So I'm thinking of, for example, President Obama's speech um, probably would have worked better in the hall. So I, I'm not sure that we'll, we'll move to this. I think people may have some nostalgia for the old uh, conventions, um, but- uh, Plus delegates like the party. <laughs> yes. Uh, have you ever, been, Matt, have be you ever been to a convention? I have not been inside, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're fun. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the rest of the public, I don't think, quite understands it's a 24-hour party for five days that these people really enjoy uh, attending. Um, we uh, are, uh, the, uh, uh, the states, uh, Michigan and uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, of course, uh, remain in the forefront. Uh, what is happening there? Uh, I, we know about Michigan because we live here. Uh, Biden's doing well, uh, but uh, what's happening in uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? Well, there was the fear going into the convention that Biden not um, being present in Wisconsin and people might feel a snub from Milwaukee um, not being the, the site. Um, there isn't a whole lot of historical evidence that uh, parties benefit from conventions being held in particular states, but they certainly try to use the opportunity. So you might see it as a missed opportunity to, to reach out more directly uh, to Wisconsin. Um, I thought, you know, some of the Biden specific uh, programming um, was, 
you know, designed to to invoke his uh, his ties to to Pennsylvania. So there might have been a little bit more uh, outreach there. But we're in a nationalized election. The states are mostly moving together, and there just isn't as much purchase as there has been in the past to these kind of state specific patterns. What should we look forward to uh, next week on the GOP front? Uh, a lot more fear and a lot um, um, more anger and, and probably a little more focus on uh, crime and uh, uh, street protests and, and riots. Uh, almost, I think it's 80 or 85 percent of Donald Trump's ads so far have mentioned crime. Um, so there really is this uh, this focus that we didn't hear a whole lot about. Um, for example, the Democrats did not use Kamala Harris's experience as a prosecutor to try to kind of inoculate uh, those um, claims that, that Democrats are, are soft on crime. So uh, you should see uh, more of that uh, next next week. And I much uh, different uh, than Donald Trump's uh, speeches in, in the past, uh, which have really been focused on uh, those concerns. He's just trying to, to make it work one more time. All right. Well, uh, we'll uh, talk to you next week and see how good your crystal ball is. Matt Grossman, thank you so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you. This is City Pulse here on 88.9 FM. For City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for listening.